Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, this is Jennifer Matarese, and mostly what I would like to do right now before I start the episode is thank all of my listeners for being exceptionally patient with me. For those of you who don't follow the Twitter or Facebook accounts, I've been having a bit of a setback with my depression the past few weeks, to the point where I spent one three-day period in bed without the spoons to do more than the essentials, and I've been struggling to regain enough energy, both mental and physical, to do more than drag myself into work every day so I don't get fired and I can still pay rent. Sometimes I feel like I started this as solely a podcast about tragic moments in history, and now it's partly become a podcast about tragic moments in me being mentally ill. (laughs) But so many of you have sent lovely, encouraging messages about me talking about being mentally ill. So I just wanted to say another huge thank you. I did kind of step away from the social media accounts for a little bit. I stepped away from writing for a little bit. I couldn't take a vacation from my job. So unfortunately, I still had to go to that. But it I had to roll something back. So that is why I did not post a lot about Grenfell Tower, the uh, several terrorist attacks that we've unfortunately had in the past couple of weeks. The ferry, I believe it was, that sank today. I There's been a lot of, of things that have been happening, and I really haven't said a lot. But hopefully I'll be able to start posting more news and more links to news about disasters to the Facebook and the Twitter account again. I also wanted to share something with those of you who don't follow the social media accounts and may not know something else that happened recently. Although I did want to say before I tell this story that everybody here is fine. A couple of Thursdays ago, I awoke to a text from my younger brother sent to our entire family, which said, I'm fine if you hear about this. And it linked to a story about a mass murder slash suicide at a local grocery store. 
My brother is a merchandiser for Coca-Cola, which means his job is to go to grocery stores and mini-marts in the area and set up their Coke displays, check their inventory, turn all the labels to face forward, that sort of thing. He starts very early in the morning, and at this particular Weiss Market in Tunkhannock, Pennsylvania, if you want to look it up, he would sometimes encounter a young person in their early 20s coming off their night shift who, according to my brother, always looked upset and never smiled. The night in question, that person arrived at their night shift with two duffel bags. They started at about 11 p.m., 12 p.m. or so, and spent an hour give or take, blocking exits, making it so that their fellow employees could not leave. Then this person returned to their duffel bags, within which were several shotguns. This person would shoot three co-workers before killing himself as well. Only one co-worker would escape their wrath and make it out alive to tell what happened. What makes this story personally terrifying and pertinent to the podcast is that my brother's first stop that morning bright and early, was supposed to be that specific grocery store. If the person in question waited until the end of their shift to commit their massacre rather than doing it first thing, my brother more than likely would have been a target. Luckily, my brother is fine. He is not someone who is heavily affected by this sort of thing. I think he was more shocked that he had met someone who would do something like this. He's fine now. He's back to texting me videos and pictures of his kitten every day. That's not a euphemism. He has a cat and he thinks it's adorable. It has him wrapped around its little paw. And <laughs> he's um he's basically uh doing really great. And I think it affected me more than it affected him because I was having some trouble with my own mental illness. But Everything is fine. Everybody's better. Some of us are getting there. And with that in mind, thank you guys for being so patient once again. And welcome to Disaster Area. Episode 40, The World Series Earthquake. October 17th, 1989. 63 deceased, thousands injured. My dad and I used to watch baseball games together when I was a kid, especially the World Series. My dad loved the Cincinnati Reds. He still does. But when it came to picking a favorite team, I was still weighing my options. In 1989, my dad wasn't up to watching the World Series. The Reds weren't playing after all, and I'm pretty sure he didn't like either team. Me, on the other hand, I thought it would be great. Two local teams facing off... Even if I wasn't a fan, watching the excited fans who were there for, to support their teams would certainly be interesting. When I turned on the TV in my parents' room to watch Game 3 of the World Series that year, the announcers were discussing the previous two games. Then everything just... cut out. The reason made the 1989 Battle of the Bay series a historic first the first time a World Series game would ever be postponed due to an earthquake. The story of the Loma Prieta earthquake, as it's usually known, started at least partially in the aftermath of the worst earthquake to strike the San Francisco area in the 20th century on April 18, 1906. 
Before the 1906 earthquake, the Marina District area of San Francisco was mostly tidal pools and sand dunes. Efforts started only decades earlier to turn the Marina District into something usable. The sand dunes were leveled out, and a newly built road led to industrial sites and other workplaces going up in the area. However, when the 1906 earthquake struck, the area collapsed. If sturdy buildings built with stone and wood on solid ground couldn't hold up to a 7.8 earthquake, a new neighborhood constructed on the sand certainly wouldn't handle it well either. In the aftermath of the earthquake, San Franciscans strove to rebuild. They wanted, maybe more aptly needed, something to get behind. And they found it in the Panama Pacific International Exposition. Much like other World's Fairs before it, the exposition, scheduled to run through most of 1915, would celebrate a major event, in this case the Panama Canal's completion. However, it would also show the world that San Francisco could rebuild after a major disaster, and do so well. The exhibition would be held on 635 acres spread across the northern shore when the Marina District had suffered... So where the Marina District had suffered so much devastating damage in the 1906 quake. This meant rebuilding from the ground up, literally, because there simply wasn't any ground. So San Francisco built some, using mud and sand brought up from the bay and the tattered remains of structures destroyed after the quake. The exposition rose arose above land, which wasn't quite land at all. But the good news, at least in the long run, was that World's Fairs were normally not meant to stand forever. While some structures might remain standing, like the Eiffel Tower following the 1889 World's Fair, the majority of buildings went up with the understanding they would come down shortly after the the, the fair was over. Only one structure still stands from the Panama Pacific International Exposition, the Palace of Fine Arts, a designated landmark which would be rebuilt and retrofitted over the years but would remain where it stood. The rest of the exhibition, however, was soon replaced by homes, apartments, businesses, that sort of thing, turning the Marina District into just another neighborhood. As the years went on, the Marina District actually became a, a pretty popular residential district in the city, but it was built on a time bomb, one which would go off nearly 75 years later. In the Bay Area, the 1989 World Series brought with it an extra bit of hometown pride. The series would be played between the San Francisco Giants and the Oakland A's, two cities right across the bay from one another. There would be no flying from one city to another for each game. The players and the fans themselves could simply drive or ride public transportation to either Candlestick Park or the Oakland Alameda County Coliseum. It had been 33 years since the last Crosstown World Series in which two teams from the same metropolitan area went head-to-head -head for the title. Enthusiasm among those who lived in both cities was off the charts. No matter who won, the winning team would be from the Bay Area. But of course, when you're from San Francisco, you want the Giants to win, and when you're from Oakland, you want Oakland to win. The first two games in the series, both of which were attended by almost 50,000 fans each, occurred at the Oakland Stadium, and from the start of the series, the A's dominated. Game 1 took place on October 14th, a game which started with a tribute to recently deceased baseball commissioner Bart Giamatti. 
The A's shut out the Giants 5-0 to zero, with their pitcher Dave Stewart allowing only five hits throughout the entire game. In Game 2 on October 15th, the A's continued to hold on to their lead, capped off with a three-run home run by Terry Steinbach. They won 5-1 and would go into Game 3 with a two-game lead. But the Giants and their fans held out hope for a comeback. They would simply need to come out on top in Game 3, which was scheduled to start on October 17, 1989, at 5.35 p.m. October 17th dawned bright and beautiful in the Bay Area, with no hint of what was to come. No recent hint, in any event. In a section of the San Andreas Fault System, located in the forest of Nicene Mark State Park, 10 miles to the northeast of Santa Cruz, something woke up. For decades, the section displayed much less seismic activity than the rest of the fault, causing it to be designated a seismic gap by seismologists the Loma Prieta seismic gap to be precise. It was named after a peak in the Santa Cruz Mountains nearby, not far from the relatively dormant section of the fault. However, on June 27, 1988, a 5.3 quake originated from that section of the fault line. It was a foreshock of something bigger, but it didn't cause much damage. Some broken windows, pieces of a parking garage crumbling to the ground, that was about it. A year later, on August 8th, 1989, another foreshock struck. This one measured 5.4, toppling chimneys and crack- cracking foundations. Unfortunately, this quake cost a man his life. 19-year-old Matthew Bignell died after falling from his fifth-story bedroom window, although it's unknown whether he jumped out of panic or simply fell by accident. Due to the strength of the shocks and how long it had been since a large earthquake had struck the area, the State Office of Emergency Services issued short-term warnings of a possible larger earthquake to come. It was the first time the agency ever issued such a warning. But since then, that section of the fault system hadn't really been a threat. And with Game 3 of the series scheduled to start at 5.35pm, everyone in the Bay Area was in a fine mood. Even the Giants fans, with the team behind by two games, still looked forward to the possibility of their Giants coming from behind to beat the A's. It's what every baseball fan wants. You want that come-from-behind sort of a thing. Because of the game, which would be the first game of the series played at Candlestick Park, many people in the area planned ahead. Some decided to hang back with coworkers or meet friends at bars to watch the game after work. Some planned to leave work earlier than usual to make sure they didn't miss the start of the game. The start of Game 3 changed the normal pace of rush hour traffic, which would be important later. Not everyone was at home yet when the pregame started at 5pm. Petra Baruman, who was in her mid-twenties, was driving her two children and her friend Yolanda Orozco home in her red Ford on the Cypress structure, a double-decker section of the Nimitz Freeway, which was I-880, running alongside Cypress Street in Oakland. Now, there's a lot of different names that you will see for this particular structure. I'm going to stick with the Cypress structure. Petra was a busy mom who'd only just learned how to drive recently so she could take her children to doctor's visits and the like. She was also learning English so she could better help them with her home- with their homework. And in the middle of juggling all of that, she also worked three days a week cleaning houses to help with expenses since the Barumans had moved into a new home only a few months earlier. 
everything that I read about this woman makes her sound like a super mom. She sounds like she loved her kids and did a ton of work to make their lives better. Petra and her friend Yolanda had just taken eight-year-old Kathy to an orthodontist appointment, and six-year-old Julio was eager to get home to watch the game with his father, Pastor. So Petra hopped on the Nimitz freeway so they could get home in time for the start of the game. On the same bottom level of the double-decker highway, longshoreman clerk Buck Helm drove his small car, but he wasn't headed home. Buck, who was 57, was divorced from his wife, Lori, who lived with their two younger children in Weaverville, a town about 250 miles away from the hustle and bustle of the big city. Buck had four kids from ages 35 to 12 at the time, and even with the divorce, he still made the long trek to Weaverville every weekend to spend time with them, including his only daughter and his youngest child, Desiree. During the week, Buck would work at the docks and sleep in a custom van nicknamed the Weaverville Flash, which was parked nearby. That night, he got into his gray car with the intention of going to get a bite to eat. But not everybody who was home was watching the game. Nobody was, not everybody was rushing home to do that. Uh, Shara Cox, who was a pianist, had only just recently moved into a new apartment at Beach and Divisadero in the Marina District and was still focused on unpacking all of her belongings. The pregame for Game 3 started at 5 p.m., like I said, with announcers Al Michaels and Tim McCarver engaging in analysis of plays in the previous two games. 62,000 fans were present in Candlestick Park that day. As the opening began, camera footage of the park from above aired, with Al Michaels mentioning it was the first World Series game played in the park in 27 years. Michaels and McCarver go over a few important plays from the two previous games, including one in Game 2 in which Oakland's Dave Parker nearly hit a home run, and in the process allowed Jose Canseco to score a run. At precisely 5.04 p.m., as footage of Jose Canseco running in the previous game aired on television screens across the nation, the feed went scratchy. Tim McCarver was saying, the Oakland A's take when the feed cut out. It cut back in just long enough for viewers to hear Al Michaels say, I'll tell you what, we're having an earth. The audio feed cut out again, and the video feed went snowy. But it was clear to the audience what Al Michaels would have finished that sentence with. The earthquake shook the entire Bay Area for about 15 seconds, depending on the distance from the epicenter and the ground's consistency. Now, 15 seconds doesn't sound like much, but if you don't live in an earthquake-prone area, wherever you are right now, in your car, in your home, at work, wherever you are, just imagine your entire world starting to shake right now. And now it stops. That was 15 seconds, give or take. 15 seconds doesn't seem like a long time. But just for comparison's sake, the 1906 San Francisco earthquake lasted 42 seconds, not counting a 20-second foreshock. The earthquake which struck Alaska in 1964, which was the second strongest earthquake in recorded history, 
lasted 4 minutes and 38 seconds. The earthquake which caused the Indian Ocean tsunami in 2004 was the longest earthquake in recorded history. It lasted 8 to 10 minutes. But in 1989, 15 seconds was all that was needed to cause serious damage in the Bay Area. The earthquake measured 6.9 on the Richter scale, or 7.1. I found different sources citing either. Striking more as a jolt than as a rolling of the ground below everyone's feet, depending on who you talk to. I've seen people who said it felt more like a jolt. The baseball players who were in the episode of 30 for 30 by ESPN, who talked about that day, said that the entire stadium seemed to roll. Uh, there is the movie San Andreas starring the rock and there are a lot of things that are wrong with that movie but one of the things that i really found fascinating was the fact that it seemed to get the role of an earthquake right the ground rolled it rippled and that is what seems to be what a lot of people said happened that day the epicenter rocked the santa cruz mountains 60 miles south southeast of the bay area a small blessing any closer and the damage could have been so much worse. As it was, a crack 12 feet deep and 6 feet wide opened up in the front yard of John and Freda Tranbarger and split the earth, reaching all the way to Summit Road several hundred feet away. The visually stunning image of the crack in their yard drew tourists to their home for days and would later require 75 tons of earth to fill. Now, they were pretty near the epicenter, so... That would explain why that huge crack in the ground. But there were a lot of things that happened in the area around that particular epicenter. Lots of uh, landslides, thousands of landslides that broke out throughout the Santa Cruz Mountains, killing one person and blocking Highway 17 for several weeks. On the cypress structure, the horizontal shaking snapped the columns supporting the upper deck, pushing them outward at the bottom as a mile and a quarter of the upper deck collapsed onto the bottom level. In surveillance video of some of the columns giving way, the columns seem to burst like they're made out of packed powder, which I guess they are, Re rebar fraying as the upper level comes down. I had honestly never seen this particular surveillance video, or at least I did not remember seeing this particular uh, surveillance video. Uh, I don't know if it was a helicopter flying overhead or if it was just surveillance video, security video, that sort of thing. But you see the highway collapse and the columns that hold it up just basically explode. Only one section of the cypress structure in that mile and a quarter remained standing, later providing a stark image to cameras in news helicopters overhead of what the highway should have looked like versus what it looked like now. Those driving on the upper decks found their cars bouncing and skidding as the road fell from underneath them. On the lower decks, a co-worker of Buck Helm, who just passed him on the highway, looked back to see the upper deck collapse behind him. He had just missed being crushed underneath it himself. But Buck's car was nowhere to be seen. On television, the people who were watching the World Series 
saw a green title card with the phrase World Series on it. The audio cut out for 12 seconds before loud crowd noises could be heard for another 10. I don't know if we're on the air, Al Michaels says. Michaels and McCarver share some barely audible chatter about whether or not the audio feed is going through. And then Al Michaels says, well, I'm not sure if we're on the air or not, and I'm not sure I care. Look where we are. Well, folks, that's the greatest opening in the history of television, bar none. He sounds pretty cheerful, but much like a lot of other people in the stadium, he really didn't know the seriousness of what was going on outside of it. In Candlestick Park, excited fans, so many of them local to the Bay Area and experienced with earthquakes, just thought of it as another everyday shake. In fact, even though the Giants and A's players were both standing out in the field, some even consoling their wives and worried family members who had gone out onto the field for safety's sake, many expected the game to commence once again. In fact, there were some cracks in the stadium, uh, a little bit here, a little bit there. It was entirely possible that the entire stadium could have collapsed. Uh, If you think of the upper deck, that hinge could have gone, and we would be telling an entirely different story right now. But basically, there were some cracks and some cement pieces fell off, concrete pieces fell off of the stadium. And you can see in news footage that a lot of the fans who were there were picking up these pieces like they were souvenirs and waving them and saying, look what I have, look what I have, that sort of thing. But then a police car pulled onto the field, and they used its public address system to announce the game would be postponed. Police Commissioner Faye Vincent decided the stadium would need to be evacuated. Baseball would have to wait until another day. This would be about the time that the disappointed crowd started to realize that just because the park only experienced minor damage and a loss of power, that didn't mean the rest of the city was unaffected. There was one thing which the game provided in the aftermath of the quake. The Goodyear blimp. The blimp had visuals restored after about 30 seconds. Shortly after the earthquake occurred, the network contacted the pilot of the blimp, which had been flying over the stadium, of course, and asked how much fuel he had. The pilot, John Creighton, responded that he had about 10 hours of fuel. The network told the pilot to go as far away from the stadium as he could and see what he could film over the city. The images that he got were startling. Smoke rising in the marina district, the collapsed cypress structure, and the Bay Bridge. On the Bay Bridge, one section of the bridge dislocated and fell. Bruce Steffen, who was driving across the bridge with a female co-worker, felt as though one of the t- one of his tires had blown when the earthquake started. Then it felt like another tire had gone. But it quickly became clear they weren't the only vehicles affected. Doug Burkhart, a bus driver, spotted the 76 by 50 foot se- section of the upper level as one end of it slammed down onto the bottom section, about 250 tons of roadway hitting it hard enough to make it crack wide open. Perhaps the only thing keeping both sections from falling into the bay was the fact that they were both situated over a support column of the bridge. But an incredibly large gap now sliced across the bottom of the bay bridge, with the fallen section still connected on one end and sloping upward like a ramp. 
Doug Burkhart, whose bus was coming up on the broken section, luckily slammed on the brakes soon enough to prevent the bus from falling through the gap. I say that, and it really sounds like it was not it was probably not that serious, but when you see video uh, from that particular day, when you see reporters reporting on that day, there's maybe about 20 feet, 15 feet between the front of that bus and the crack in the bottom of the bridge. At the same time, Bruce Steffen, whose car was one of the pair that tilted precariously above the gap in the bridge, scrambled out of his car and attempted to climb up onto the lower deck. Doug Burkhart ran over to help both Bruce and his coworker Janice pull themselves to safety, getting them up onto the road and away from the gap. They weren't the only car in a precarious situation on the Bay Bridge, however. Shortly after the quake, traffic backed up and police started directing drivers to turn around and drive off the bridge. Eastbound drivers stuck between the collapse and Yerba Buena Island needed to be sent to the top of the bridge, where they would be ordered westward toward San Francisco. But some cars were directed the wrong way, including a van which was rented by tourists Tom and De- uh, Debbie Kelly, who fortunately spotted the gaping hole in the bridge before them before they went over it. They stopped their van and tried to warn others not to go any further, but they also whipped out their video camera and were able to capture the moment when one unfortunate car just kept going. Oh gosh, that could have been us, Debbie Kelly can be heard saying on the, ri- the video after the car vanishes from view, tumbling over the side. Inside the Red Ford Escort, which tumbled over the side, were Lesesita Halangahu and his sister Anna Matthew Moala. Lesesita had just uh, flown into San Francisco International Airport from Australia on his way back from a funeral, and his 23-year-old sister, Anamafi, picked him up after her shift as a nurse's aide. Like the others, Anamafi and Lesesita had been on the bottom level of the bridge at 5.04 p.m. when the earthquake struck. Emergency workers directed them toward Oakland, where the gap in the bridge lie waiting just ahead of about 50 cars which had all been sent the wrong way. After not seeing the opening in the bridge, Anamafi drove their car over the side. The escort slammed into the sloping roadside, crushing the front of the car. Anamafi passed out from her severe injuries, and Lesesita wasn't much better off. The bones of his legs were crushed, jutting through his skin in multiple places. He reached over and shook her awake, and she moaned out the name John, Lesesita's son and her godson, according to Tongan traditions. By the time the car was hauled up the fallen road in front of TV cameras, Anamafi was already gone. She had passed away. A helicopter carefully lowered itself between the girders of the bridge to take Lesesita to Letterman Hospital, where he would begin to receive the first of 11 surgeries he would need to repair his broken legs, along with a hip replacement. Meanwhile, in the Marina District, the lack of a solid ground underneath the area, with sand, mud, and past earthquake debris the only base beneath most buildings, led to liquefaction. The ground softened beneath the Marina District, and the lower floors of apartment buildings flattened like toothpicks. Not only that, but the earthquake severed gas lines, starting fires throughout the area, and water lines, making it more difficult to fight the growing flames. 
Eventually, a fireboat, the Phoenix, would be run aground near the marina district, so water from the bay could be used to put out fires which originated throughout the area. As for the slumping buildings, the locals sprang into action. Dentist Stephen Bradasani and others worked together to gather two-by-fours and prop up buildings which tilted to the side, looking as though they could collapse at any moment. The Dickinsons lived in a first-floor apartment on Cervantes Boulevard, at least until the earthquake struck. Mom Carol was carrying her three-month-old son Scotty to his changing table when the earthquake struck. The building slumped to the side, and Carol bolted for safety with the baby in her arms. Instead, she ended up in what was left of the garage below them. The pair would be trapped in that space for about an hour. The air around them clouded with dust and debris from what was left of their apartment building. Carol's lungs could handle it, but little Scotty's lungs couldn't. When the two were finally removed, Scotty had already passed away. He would be the earthquake's youngest victim. Shara Cox, on the other hand, would soon be heard calling out from inside her own collapsed apartment building. Fire Station 9 near Candlestick Park ended up sending their truck not to the park, but across town to Cervantes and Fillmore in the Marina District. On board was firefighter Jerry Shannon. When they arrived in the Marina District, Jerry spotted a building where the bottom floor was rubble and the top floor had slid into the street like the top of a wedding cake. Jerry stuck his head into a window and asked, Is anyone in here? Deep inside the tangled timbers, Sharer called out, Yes, I hear you. I'm in here. Jerry wriggled through the wreckage until he reached Shara, who was trapped underneath a door. Getting her out would be a major undertaking, not even counting the fact the building across the street and the one next door were both on fire. When Jerry started to work on getting her out of what was left of her apartment, he told her about the fire across the street, but not the one next door. It would take three hours before Shara Cox could finally be removed from the building. Jax would be set up to keep what was left of the building upright so she could be saved. Jerry Shannon would need to go through two different chainsaws and a hatchet before he finally reached Shara. Jerry and another firefighter slipped a board underneath Shara to stabilize her and carry her through the narrow space that led to the window they'd entered through. Once they were outside, Shara asked, uh, Jerry, what's your last name? Shannon, he told her. Oh, they sent an Irishman, she said happily. It's very cute hearing her, uh, hearing him tell this story. Just to share that. Um, she gave him a kiss and she told him that he was her hero. I owe you a coffee, he told her. I owe you more than that, she shot back. She would soon be transported to the hospital where she would go into surgery for a fractured pelvis. Now, at the Cypress structure, the people who lived in the area and who worked in the area immediately went to work. They saw what had happened. They had seen that highway collapse. And if they hadn't seen it collapse, they certainly saw what the aftermath was. The Cypress structure traveled through an area that had multiple industrial areas, warehouses, those sorts of things. And those in the area were quickly able to access forklifts and ladders that they had lots of access to in order to reach this five-story high highway. Before fire and rescue could even reach the area, locals scrambled up to the pancaked lower level. Those on the upper level were shaken, but mostly all right. 
Those on the lower level, however, would not be so lucky. Bystanders expected the worst, especially considering the earthquake happened at what normally would be rush hour. Hundreds of cars could be inside that structure with hundreds of people inside them. Now, I want you to do something. Are you sitting down? Okay. Rest your elbow on your knee or a table or whatever it is that you have in front of you. Now raise your flattened hand with your elbow still on the table so that you're staring at your palm and your fingers are pointed toward the ceiling. Basically, just so you're looking at the flat of your hand. That measurement from your elbow to the tip of your middle finger is just a little bit shorter than the space some of the rescuers faced as they crawled in between the collapsed levels of the double-decker highway. To make things worse, in places where support beams crossed the underside of the upper deck, portions of the car crushed underneath them were flattened to a mere four inches. Those who survived were trapped in vehicles which were compacted almost to the point of becoming coffins. The wrecks smoked as engines which had been revved as their drivers tried to escape the swaying highway continued to keep firing. Lights blinked and car horns blared without stopping as the upper level pressed down on those trashed cars. One of the people who crawled into the highway to look for survivors managed to find a certain red Ford. When they did, they discovered that the two people who were sitting in the front seat had been crushed beyond recognition. But in the back seat, there were two children. One was a little girl, who was about eight, and the other was a little boy who was slumped all the way down in the, in the footwell. That person stayed with them and was able to get help so that the little girl could be taken out of the vehicle and rescued. But she was the easy one. It was her brother that was more difficult to remove. Julio Barumen was stuck, and they were going to need a surgeon fast. Dr. James Betts, a pediatric surgeon, arrived at the Cypress structure with a couple of other surgeons, a respiratory therapist, and a pair of nurses. By the time they arrived, little Kathy Baruman had already been removed from the Ford with severe facial injuries. When Betts and his team climbed up to assist in extracting Julio. They found themselves working in a space that was almost that was at most three feet high and in an unstable environment, five stories above the ground. Once they got inside the structure, they saw the damage the earthquake did. An entire public bus had been crushed to a height of only two feet. Five or six bodies tangled in its wreckage. They found the Two adults in the front seat must have died instantly when several hundred tons of concrete slammed down onto the front of the Ford. In fact, they were in such bad condition, the doctors could barely even tell if the two people in the front of the car were men or women. Given the two children in the back seat, the initial assumption was that the two people were the children's parents. Little Julio was barely conscious, having slid downward until his right leg slipped under one of the seats. 
The weight crushed his right leg, and the only way to remove him would be to amputate the limb on sight as quickly as possible. But to amputate the leg, the doctors would need to perform a gruesome act. The body in the front passenger seat would need to be removed, and the only way to do that was to dismember the body. It wasn't a hard decision. As Dr. Betts would later say, the body was merely a vessel and the soul was gone. So someone went to fetch a chainsaw. Once the deed was done, Dr. Betts and his team made quick work of tying off Julio's right leg and amputating the tramped limb. With that completed, Julio was strapped to a stretcher and whisked off to Children's Hospital to be taken into surgery. As far as anyone knew, Julio Berumen would be the last person pulled alive from what was left of the cypress structure. Pastor Berumen knew his family would be traveling on the cypress structure, so when he saw the images on the TV of the flattened double-decker highway, he knew the likelihood his missing family was trapped within the collapsed concrete. With the phone lines down, Pastor couldn't simply call the local hospitals in search of his wife and kids. After a few hours, Pastor heard mention on the news that an eight-year-old girl had been removed from the cypress structure. When he then heard a six-year-old boy was still trapped inside, he realized it was probably Kathy and Julio. Once the roads cleared, Pastor headed to Children's Hospital. As days passed, the rescue stage passed and the recovery stage began. Now it was simply a matter of removing the bodies from the crushed insides of the cypress structure before it settled anymore. Authorities and rescuers still weren't sure precisely how many bodies they were going to find. Normally, they could count on hundreds of people using the Nimitz Freeway and the cypress structure during rush hour. It was entirely possible 300 bodies could be trapped in the rubble. But as the recovery process continued, it became evident the World Series kept a great number of commuters off the roads. Fewer bodies were being found than expected, even after four days. Just before dawn on October 21st, an engineer checking one section of the collapsed highway for stability peered deep inside and suddenly saw movement. Someone in one of the wrecked cars was waving at him. Orange County fireman Chuck Nicola climbed inside the structure and reached into the wreckage, discovering the man inside was still alive. He said his name was Buck. Chuck, who was kind of stunned to be facing someone who was still alive, thought for a moment he'd said a completely different word. Buck had luck out. While the front and rear ends of his car had been crushed, a steel girder fell in just the right position to protect the section of the car Buck was in from being flattened. When Buck was finally removed from the cypress structure five hours after he was discovered, it had been 90 hours since the earthquake struck. At home in Weaverville, his family watched the live news footage, hoping upon hope that the man that had been found alive in the rubble was Buck. No one said the man's name, and you couldn't really see his face. But then one of his sons recognized something. The man on the stretcher being lowered to the ground wore a pair of black tennis shoes. Shoes he'd borrowed from his son before the quake. The survivor on TV was Buck Helm. 63 people would die as a result of the earthquake. 44 of those who died would be found in the cypress structure. I've seen varying numbers for those, uh, but those seem to be about right. Of all the survival stories to come out of the Loma Prieta earthquake, the Baruman children and Buck Helm were the ones most closely followed by the media. 
Buck's survival was considered a miracle. Lucky Bucky, as he came to be called by several local radio stations, suffered from kidney problems due to his diabetes being untreated for days, a skull fracture, dehydration, three broken ribs, and nerve damage. As the days progressed, he seemed to be getting better, though. He was still on a respirator, but he was eventually removed from a dialysis machine. On November 2nd, he was transferred from Highland General to Kaiser Permanente. Weaverville, the town where his family lived, posted signs and, and posters supporting him. But Buck would take a downturn, and he would finally pass away of respiratory failure on November 18th, a month after the earthquake. The Berumen children had a happier ending, although the initial news that their mother's body needed to be separated to allow Julio to be rescued made the public sympathy for them even stronger than it might normally have been. In fact, it wouldn't be until two days after the earthquake, when Pastor Berumen spoke with the coroner, that it would be discovered that it was family friend Yolanda Orozco, not Petra, who was the one whose body had been taken apart so that Julio could be removed. Petra's body would be trapped in the family's ford in the cypress structure for a week after the earthquake. But the children were still alive, and at the moment, that was what mattered. The public embraced Julio and Kathy Berumen. A fund in their name collected hundreds of thousands of dollars. School children in Hiroshima sent them a thousand origami cranes as a show of goodwill and support. They received hundreds of cards, letters, and gifts wishing them well. Kathy needed 10 hours of reconstructive facial surgery for damaged cheekbones, a broken jaw, and a banged up head. But she also spent time working through the guilt she felt from it being her dentist appointment they were leaving that day. With hard work during and after a long time spent in Children's Hospital, it only took a few years before Julio needed neither a wheelchair nor crutches to get around. He got around without a problem as a teen and rode a motorbike without any issues. These days, his Facebook page features a picture of him as an adult participating in what looks like a martial arts competition, all with one pants leg pinned up at the bottom. Pastor Berumen remained protective of his children in the years following the earthquake, keeping them out of the public spotlight and moving with them to a new home. It appears to have done them well from every interview and article that I was able to get a hold of. Ten days after the earthquake, the postponed Game 3 would be played in Candlestick Park between the Giants and the A's, with emergency responders throwing out the first pitch. The A's won the game 13-7, then won Game 4 9-6 to sweep the series. For most people, the, ga- the series was more memorable for the earthquake, which interrupted it, than the game itself. The Bay Bridge would be repaired and reopened on November 18th. Before the earthquake, the Bay Bridge had already been scheduled to be retrofitted the following week. Perhaps the luckiest fact was that the collapse section failed directly over one of the bridge's support structures. At any other section of the bridge, both levels may have fallen into the bay. It certainly looks as though the support column is what's keeping those two sections from falling into the bay. A year after the earthquake, Anna Matthew Moales, Moales, 
family and widower return to the bridge to throw flowers over the side and sing songs to remember her in a Tongan memorial service. The money the family would get from a lawsuit filed against the state for the way the emergency workers mistakenly directed the car the wrong way helped Lesesita Halangahu provide for his family and gave them financial stability. But they would no doubt rather have Anna Maffey back. It took 11 years and $800 million, but the cypress structure was eventually rebuilt in a different location, closer to the port and the Bay Bridge, but farther away from residential neighborhoods. In the meantime, Bay Area residents were diverted through Interstate 980, which understandably led to more congestion along that particular highway. All in all, the earthquake would result in about 5 to $6 billion in damage throughout the area. Following the earthquake, San Francisco would require retrofitted safety measures on buildings with reinforced masonry. In the Marina District, 12,000 homes and over 2,500 businesses received damage. Survivor Sheriff Cox and Fireman Jerry Shannon maintained their friendship following the disaster, to the point where Jerry took over as a medical representative uh, for her hospital care when her diabetes worsened. First, she would need her toes removed, then her feet. When they wanted to do more amputations, Jerry stood up for her when she refused, knowing the choice would mean she wouldn't last much longer. She would eventually pass away in 2009. After the earthquake, Bay Bridge survivor Bruce Steffen, who was in the car with his co-worker and needed to be assisted up onto the lower deck by Doug Burkhart, the bus driver, and Bruce Steffen and his wife decided they would rather not go through something like that again and relocated to New York City. They got really lucky. They both got jobs very close to one another. Bruce was in one building. His wife was in the building next door. It worked out fine until September 11th, 2001. Luckily, both Bruce and his wife were able to escape from both towers before they collapsed. The Loma Prieta earthquake in 1989 was the strongest to strike the Bay Area since the 1906 quake. It seemed like even the Earth itself must have been excited for the World Series. I wasn't really sure about which earthquake to talk about first. There are so many great earthquakes. And I say great. That sounds really bad. Um, there are so many really interesting earthquakes to talk about. The 1906 one being really interesting. I'm always fascinated by um, uh, the New Madrid earthquake in the center of the United States, where it seems like there really shouldn't be earthquakes. Uh I've never actually experienced an earthquake, or at least I don't remember experiencing an earthquake. We did have an earthquake in Pennsylvania or along the East Coast. I'm not exactly sure how it worked. I was at work and I didn't even notice it was happening because I was so busy. And then they evacuated us and I had no idea why. This particular earthquake, though, is the first disaster that I really remember uh, seeing from the very beginning given my age it would probably be more likely that i would have seen the challenger explosion happen live on tv and then be able to follow the investigation as it happened but as i seem to recall i'm not sure if this is true or not but my memory of it is that 
I was in about fifth or sixth grade. I can't remember exactly which one. And all of the fifth and sixth grade classrooms were in the same hallway. And every other classroom in the hallway was going to get to watch this on a TV in their room. And our teacher said, no, you can watch it later on the news. At least that's my memory of it. And we were all sitting in the room feeling cheated that we didn't get to watch this. And then we started hearing people in other rooms reacting. That's my memory of it. Like I said, I don't find it very dependable. Um, But this is a memory that I do carry and that I do associate with the World Series. And I associate with... uh, something that I really loved as a kid. I think the fact that it did happen during the World Series is a reason why I remember it. You know, seeing it on screen would have been one thing. Uh, But the fact that it happened during the World Series, which I always watched as a kid because my dad was a huge baseball fan. And so me and my brother were huge baseball fans. And so I was determined to watch the World Series, even if my dad was going to to say, no, no, I don't like either team. I'm going to go downstairs and watch a movie (laughs) or something like that. Um, That gave me a connection to to this game, um, to this earthquake. This was something that I remembered because I was watching it as it happened, and uh, at least on television. And I remember that my initial reaction because of the way that Al Michaels sounded when he said, you know, tell you what, we're having an earthquake. And then he said, uh, that's the greatest opening in history, bar none. And, and, and the way that he sounded was very excited. He didn't sound scared or terrified. And it was kind of one of those things where, as a kid, I thought, well, if he's not scared and nobody else is scared, then... It, it must be fine. It must be San Francisco. It's just one of those things. They'll start the game any minute now. And I thought, if they just had an earthquake, maybe I can get my dad to watch the game now. So I ran downstairs and told my dad, Dad, guess what? They just had an earthquake during the World Series. And he said, oh, that's nice. And then he didn't turn it on, which really bothered me. <laughs> but um, because I was a total daddy's girl and I wanted to watch the game with my dad. And so it was kind of annoying to me. But I know at some point we did... Uh, turn on the news Um, I don't know if what they were watching was interrupted by breaking news or if they went looking for the news but at some point you started seeing that news footage you started seeing that footage of the collapsed Bay Bridge and the Cypress structure and all of that and it was slowly becoming more terrifying it was becoming that thing that you're afraid of every time you think well maybe i'll move to california and then you start thinking of earthquakes and then you picture the cypress structure that's something that's an image that if you know anything about this earthquake that's the image that you know i know that when it came to following this particular earthquake and following the news that came out you would think that as I was 12 at the time and you would think that as a 12 year old, the story that I would have been focused on would have been the kids would have been Kathy and Julio Baruman. And I think on some level I was a little bit interested, but it was also a little too close to home. Uh, I had a little brother. He was about three. I was 12. It was 
a bit of a difference, but I was still the older sister with the younger brother. And I think hearing about that story sparked fear in me, especially considering, you know, their mom died and it, it wasn't a story that made me feel good that they had survived. It, it, it hit a little too close to home, much like the story that my brother texted me that said, you know, I'm fine if you read this. You know, you really don't want to hear about something that hits that close to home. It, it's one of those things that, you know what, maybe I don't want to hear about that. Um, but even as a 12-year-old little kid, the story that I found fascinating was Buck Helm. That was the story that fascinated me. This 57-year-old guy who spent four days, spent 90 hours trapped in that structure. They had thought that everybody in there was dead, that there was no way somebody could still be alive. And then he comes out. And I remember going through the newspapers every day because I, I as a little kid, I, I would read anything. And uh, at 12, I mean, of course I'd read the newspaper. I started, would start going through the newspapers and I was looking for earthquake news. And, and so I was reading about, you know, well, we found this here and this there and we found, you know, and how uh, Julio and Kathy are doing and, and all of these different stories that were coming out. I wanted to read everything. And of course you kind of have that hope that they're going to find somebody else alive. But you also, even as a 12 year old understand, they're probably not going to find anybody else alive. I was really hoping that they would find someone else alive in that Cypress structure. That's a hopeful story. That's something that you want to hear. And even though so many people were crushed in there, you knew what the inside of that had to look like. Even as a kid, I knew what the inside of that had to look like. I was hoping that they would find someone so when I, I I think I came home from school one day and I saw on the news that they had found another survivor they had found somebody in the rubble and I was fascinated by this I was fascinated that somebody had been able to hold out for four whole days and I would read anything that they would throw in front of me about Buck Helm I was fascinated by this guy I didn't I mean, he, he had, I had nothing in common with him. I had nothing in common with this man other than the fact that I was fascinated that he was able to hold on for as long as he did. And I was waiting. I was hopeful because I was hoping that he would be able at some point to tell his story. And you know how it is when People Magazine gets involved with these sorts of things and disasters happen. They immediately run out and they, uh, when they get an opportunity and they do an interview. And that was my thing, was that I was waiting for the interview with Buck Helm talking about, with him telling us his story. Uh, there's a reason that I love I Survived, because it's people who sit there and tell you their stories of surviving incidents like this. And that was what I was waiting for. And we never got it. And when the story came out that he had passed away a month after the earthquake, as a little kid, I thought it was just a tragedy. I thought it was, I thought it was not, it, it was just a, like a, like a, like a trick. It was just a mean thing to do to give him another month and, you know, and, and put him through all of that and then take him away and it upset me 
And looking back on it now as an adult for everything that he went through, I don't imagine that he wasn't glad to have that extra month that he, I mean, he could have died. He could have died so quickly in that in in that structure he could have died he had diabetes very bad he i mean he had kidney problems and he didn't eat he didn't drink he didn't have any food he had broken bones and and all kinds of different things that were wrong with him and he could have died in there and never seen his family again he could he never spoken to his family again and he luckily was able to live long enough to go to the hospital and say his goodbyes and, you know, maybe, you know, um, it's better than, you know, maybe it's not the ideal option that, that you have to be so seriously injured and suffer for, for that time. But it's better than never seeing them again and never being able to say to them that you love them and that you, uh, you know, that you've always loved them and that, you know, you, that you're very, very, um, that you, you know, if you had died in the cypress structure that, you know, you still would have loved them all. Um, there's another thing that really fascinates me about this particular, uh, earthquake and that is that it generated not one but two television movies um i i have a thing for these old uh when i say old i mean like 80s and 90s uh television movies where they portray real life disasters uh they did one for they did two for this earthquake they did one for the hawaiian uh, the Aloha flight where the roof ripped off. They did one for the Sioux City crash where the uh, plane crashed. Uh, it's flight 232, which crashed in, in Sioux City and it, it tumbled into a, a cornfield. They did a, one for that one. Um, I'm trying to remember some others that they did, but they, I, I believe there was also one about the plane crash in Dallas, I want to say, uh, where the microburst brought down the plane. And I, I believe there was one about that. I know, oh, there was also one about the plane crash in the Everglades in the 70s, I believe. I, this is the thing. I love these TV movies. You should not learn anything about these disasters from these TV movies, but I like them because it's something that generates interest in these stories so that you might go back and learn more about them. Um, you know, it's the same way with like Titanic. Titanic is, is cheesy and the romance is kind of terrible and I love every minute of it and I could watch it over and over again. And every time I talk about Titanic, I'm like, look, I know it's a terrible movie on some level. It's kind of cheesy. It's kind of lovable. I saw it six times in the movie theater Go read stuff on Titanic, though. Titanic is really interesting. There's so much stuff about Titanic to learn. And that's the kind of thing that you should be doing when you uh, go see a movie that is based on a real-life disaster. For example, Everest. Go read Into Thin Air. Uh, 
oh, the USS Indianapolis movie came out last year, um, I believe it was. Go read the book on that, um, which I believe is called In, In Harm's Way. Uh, but in this particular case, there were two different TV movies that were made about this earthquake. One is more of a more of a by the numbers disaster movie. Uh, it stars um, oh, see now I've blanked. Um, it, there are actually people that you recognize in this movie, um, but there aren't a lot of them. Um, uh, I know Eric McCormick from Will and Grace is in there um, if for like three scenes. Um, there's, you know, there's a couple of people here and there that you may recognize. Sandy Duncan plays Buck Helm's wife. Um, you know, these kind of things. If you if you are 40, you're, if you're approaching 40 like me, you may recognize these actors. Um, but the other movie that is based on that particular uh disaster it's called after the after the quake after the shock that's what it's called and they do something a little different where it, it's more in the moment the way that they film with the cameras is more in the moment they are it seems more like they're using you know they're using different cameras and they're filming it as though the earthquake is happening right now the first movie focuses more on the barumans and the helm family it's focusing on what happened on the cyberstructure that day the second movie goes all over town it it goes to the marina district it goes to the cypress structure it it goes to different places um yafet kodo is in it uh rue mcclanahan is in it there are faces that you recognize um the fact that it has rue mcclanahan is what tilts my 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 um my support for one movie or the other in favor of that movie um rue mcclanahan plays shara cox in the movie and you don't even see her for most of the movie because she's buried under a door, but she's, she's being Rue McClanahan and she's also being Shara Cox, who is uh, in interviews is very uh, thankful to Jerry Shannon. She's very, uh, very friendly and, and very, um, uh, you know, she's one of those women who, who, who doesn't take any guff and you can tell, um, but she's very nice about it. For some reason, if that if that even makes any sense, uh, but the fact that she's played by Ruba Clanahan, that movie wins. Um, I know that Miracle on I eighty, which is the first movie, is on Amazon because I own it. I bought it before researching this podcast episode. By the way, I've had it for a while because every once in a while I feel like rewatching it. Um, the second movie is on youtube all you really have to do is is you know search for it and it comes up um like i said they're all i believe the second movie starts with uh the world series footage so you see that and i also learned while doing research for this particular episode that if you go on YouTube, they have on one of the classic Major League Baseball game uh, channels, they actually have the postponed Game 3 in its entirety for you to watch. So if that's something you want to watch, 
knock yourself out. Um, <laughs> um, I, since then, I've actually um, picked a team, by the way. Uh, when I was in high school, I was into the Toronto Blue Jays because they kept winning World Series. And now I am a Washington Nationals fan for whatever it's worth. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I lived in D.C. when they were moved down there. So that's, the, that's how I picked my team. It's the Washington Nationals are my team. But um, this particular earthquake I really wanted to talk about. I really wanted to, to share. Um, it's, it's just something that, that I have a very personal connection to because it is the first disaster that I really followed in the newspaper. I mean, you know it's bad when your 12-year-old is sitting around very interestingly reading newspaper stories about funding for for retrofitting buildings and in, in, in the marina district you, you know something is is very very seriously strange with your child um, <laughs> um i'm not exactly sure what i'm going to do next um the aid series that i plan to do um it may end up being postponed obviously because of recent events uh my recent health issues um but uh, I do have a long list of, of stuff that I've been um, working on. And I think the next one is a fire. Uh, that's your hint. <laughs> um, aside from that, uh, like I said at the beginning of this podcast, uh, I spend so much time talking about my mental health issues on this podcast that it really, sometimes it, feel, it does feel like this has become the, the, uh, the disaster podcast uh, and I'm one of the disasters that I'm talking about. And uh, nobody yet has kind of stepped forward as far as I've seen and said, please stop talking about how you're crazy and start talking about um, ships sinking and things blowing up and all of those sorts of things. And so I really appreciate that because I'm not sure I could handle reading something like that when I'm uh, having a having a week without spoons, such as it were. And if you don't know what that reference is, spoons, according to mental illness, that's what Google is for. Um, <laughs> uh, I've also, um, uh, I wanted to recommend too, if you, if you have, are interested in mental illness and you have never read Furiously Happy by Jenny Lawson, you have to go out and read it because it's amazing. And I've been listening to it at work, an audiobook to pick me up. Uh, and I just, I just want to recommend, I just want to recommend it to somebody and you guys are here and you're, you're trapped. You're my audience. So, um, <laughs> um, in terms of, of, uh, uh other things that have been happening lately too i really did want to um i really did want to address that i didn't want to just go in passing and and mention grenfell tower and then not not say anything about it so much of of what you see in the news about it um is is upsetting uh i think the you, you know there's 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 stories that that make you feel so much better about what happened I mean, not, you know, not that it wasn't completely tragic. And for all we know at this point, there's so many people who are still missing that it could be hundreds who have died in this. And the one thing that I heard that just um, at least made me feel a little better was that the timing of it was such that there were a lot of uh, Muslim 
people who were living in the building and they had all gone to the mosque early in the morning because it was Ramadan to break their fast. And when they came back to their apartments, everything was on fire. So they were all these young men who had gone to the mosque. That was what I was seeing in the, in the news, you know, with people saying, you know, all of these young men who live in this apartment building with us were running around, knocking on doors, getting everybody up early in the morning, trying to get us to wake up so that we could get out of this building. And so the fact that these these young men were were able to come back at just the right time to save some of these people. I mean, as high as the body count may be, it could have been so much worse. Um, another thing that uh, I, I wanted to address in regards to Grenfell Tower is the cladding issue. Um, there's so many things that are wrong with what happened in regards to the cladding. If you don't know what I'm talking about in regards to the Grenfell Tower um, fire, um, you must know about the Grenfell Tower if you're list fire if you're listening to this podcast. I'm making that assumption at least. Um, the cladding that they had decorating the side of the building, so uh, this this estate building, which is basically um, uh, cheaper housing, I guess is is a better way to put it. Um, for people who are not from uh, Britain, I believe. If I'm getting this wrong, feel free, Brits, to call me out on this. But basically, um, they're living in, in, in this in this uh, Grenfell Tower, which is this council estate. And uh, the luxury apartments that faced it were, didn't really like the look of it. Uh, so to make it look a little better, they put this cladding up on the side of the building. And it turns out the cladding is highly flammable they could have gotten non-flammable cladding but it was something like it was only a few thousand dollars more expensive but as we've learned time and time again on this particular podcast any way that some people can save a buck they will do it Uh, i flashed back to the station fire with the owners in that particular situation putting this super cheap egg cart uh egg carton uh sound buffer uh stuff on the walls and it turned out to be extraordinarily flammable and and assisted in killing a quarter of the people who were in the building that day in the case of grenfell towers i mean it looked like the towering inferno it burned like a candle it 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 was horrifying to see images of that to see pictures of that and i just remember i mean i have the towering inferno on my phone which seems like an odd movie to keep on my phone but i I like my disaster movies and occasionally if i'm bored and i want to have a disaster movie to watch just in case i i have the towering inferno on my phone and the poster for the towering inferno looks a lot like those pictures of the Grenfell Tower just burning. And so you see now in the news that they're starting to go through all of this cladding on all of these buildings in the, in the country, in Britain. And something so far they found like 20 to 20 25 buildings where the cladding is this flammable material 
and it's hard to imagine, you know, that, that, you know, what had happened if those had burned as well. Um, and that's why we have these regulations. You know, I, I hate to go back to, you know, what kind of comes off as a boring subject, which is safety regulations, government safety regulations. But, you know, here we go again with, with, you know, maybe you might want to, um, you know, the reason we have things like that is because there are people who will look at a bill that says, you know, this is the really flammable stuff that is below grade and it's $5,000 and this is the stuff that isn't going to burn and it's $10,000 and they say, well, I'll just take the cheaper one. And that's how you end up with hundreds of people who've, who've passed away in this terrible tragedy. I know that there also is a, um, uh, a charity single that was put out, I believe by Simon Cowell. He had, um, some, uh, some British performers come together to sing a cover of a song, which unfortunately I can't remember which song it was. Uh, I would have posted a link to the Facebook if I was, um, more active lately. But uh, if you have a chance to buy that single, please do, uh, so that the uh, survivors of Grenfell Tower can can get by and and can restart their lives after losing everything in a lot of cases, and losing and losing loved ones and losing so much in what was a very preventable situation. Okay. Um, <laughs> It, it just feels a futile sometimes talking about these sorts of situations because uh, I do these episodes and I, I do all the research and I go through them and you see the same mistakes going, you know, being done over and over again. And, and while this is a subject that fascinates me and while this is a subject, uh, it disasters while these things always fascinate me. One of the things that fascinates me more than anything, and not in a good way, is that some of these problems and some of these mistakes that get made just keep happening. And the same mistake, the same problem, the same, you know, people, um, and, and it usually seems to boil down to an owner or a CEO or a landlord or somebody cutting a corner that saves money but leads to tragedy and I may be getting off on a tangent so um I don't really want to get into um anything more than that but especially now considering it's so soon after it happened I know it's been uh, I can't remember the precise day when Grenfell Tower burned, but it, it's really too soon to tell a lot of things about a tragedy like that. Um, I always try to warn you guys and try to warn everybody who listens to me and follows me on Facebook and follows me on, on Twitter that when things like this happen, the information that you're getting at the beginning of uh, that, that comes out right at the beginning um after disasters after terrorist incidents after mass shootings you cannot depend on that information do not 
hold on to that information and say, you know, well, you know, later on after the facts are cleared up, you cannot say, well, this is what you said, you know, at the beginning. There is so much that goes on in the aftermath of these things, the panic that goes on, the confusion, so many things that nobody really knows, the emotional things that people are going through and and the uh, things that are going on behind the scenes and, and things that you don't know about, investigations, all of these different things that are going on, eyewitness accounts, which are not as trustworthy as you would think they are unless you've, you know, unless you've watched enough forensic files and all of these different crime shows to know that sometimes witnesses get it wrong. Actually, a lot of times witnesses get it wrong. And so you may be hearing, you know, so many different things. And unless there's video of something that happened, I, I wouldn't depend on information that you're getting straight out of the gate after a disaster immediately after a disaster even even a week or two after a disaster you may want to take what you're hearing with a grain of salt and even with video you you may still have to do that it's one of those things where you have to give it time you have to give people time to look into things and find out well you know we heard this rumor is it true um and at the same time even when that happens, you still get, you know, years down the line, people who believe whatever it was that they heard the very, you know, the very day that disaster happened, the very hour that disaster happened, which is how you get conspiracy theorists and and people who just kind of latch on to things that have been proven wrong. And, and so... Like I said, take everything with a grain of salt. Just be caring about the people who have lost their lives. Be caring about the people who have lost um, their loved ones. Uh, be caring about people who, even if it's just a matter of simply losing possessions, sometimes that can be extraordinarily difficult when you've lost your home too. Um, even if you haven't lost a home, even if you do have somewhere to go, that's still a traumatizing event. There are so many things that the people associated with this particular disaster are dealing with right now. And it's good to keep an open mind when it comes to these sorts of things, you need to understand that the information that you're hearing immediately after something happens, it, it's it's not always true. It's not always um, going to be um, something that isn't proven wrong 10 minutes down the line. Um, the day after it happened, or it may have been the night that it happened, I was telling a coworker because I was working that night that it had happened. And there was already news that um, some of the Muslim tenants had been able to assist in getting people out. And she said something along the lines of, you know, kind of laughingly said, well, geez, I, I would have thought they would have set the fire. And there's, there's only so many things that you can say at work <laughs> to a coworker. And I, I just sort of walked away. Um, you, 
but uh, it's really um, it's really something to keep in mind um, in regards to everything that's happening and everything that you're hearing and every new story that comes out um, whether it be a terrorist attack whether it be a fire whether it be a mass shooting you know it if not all the information is going to be there cut and dry in you know when the cops walk in the door everything is not going to be sitting exactly where it is with a big neon sign pointed to it um it'd be nice if that was the way the world worked that you knew from the very beginning exactly what happened but that's not always the case and I think I just wanted to talk about that because probably of that in because of that incident at work, but also because um, it just has become frustrating to read the news lately when so many disasters and tragedies have been occurring in the past few weeks. So many, you know, these these terror attacks and um, uh, you know the 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 GOP baseball practice shooting and and all of these different things that it's always good to keep in uh, um to understand that the information that you get double check it triple check it uh check snopes check whatever you need to check to make sure that what you're hearing isn't isn't garbage uh i'm not trying to go all fake news on you i'm going to this is not me saying fake news fake news this is me saying sensible news um and People are not sensible um, in the aftermath of something like this. And they can um, say the wrong thing. They can share the wrong information. They can uh, share too much information. Um, so be sensible is basically my what I'm trying to say. Um be sensible when other people are not being sensible. It's basically what I'm trying to say. Um, now that I've gotten all that out of the way, okay, no more rambling, no more talking about that sort of thing. Um, if there is anything that uh, you would like to do um, in terms of uh, helping me out, um, regarding um I, my mental health stuff um don't worry about me help others <laughs> um help you know donate to whoever you know go buy the grenfell tower charity thing go donate blood or plasma or whatever you need to do you know go go help other people i will be okay um i i blew about 160 bucks on a, on a brand new Kindle to make myself feel better. I'll, I'll be fine. Um, I have books to read. So, <laughs> um, again, thank you guys so much for listening and for being patient with me. Um, like I, and, and, you know, like I said, um, I'm fine. My brother is fine. My brother is texting me pictures of the world's cutest kitten. How can I not be fine? Um, so I will see you guys next time or talk to you guys next time. And until then, stay safe.
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.